happen in the midbrain is the major cause of the motor deficits in Parkinson's disease. We think that uh, Parkinson's disease is a, a very good target for cell replacement therapy. As a matter of fact, since 1980s, uh, many scientists have tried this idea, which is a transplantation of uh, different types of dopamine producing cells in diverse animal models, as well as uh, you know, humans. Uh, so uh, as you see here uh, in Parkinson's disease uh, brain, uh, this uh, you know, uh, brown color, dark brown color, melanin uh, positive dopamine neurons are very uh, weaker than the normal people. So uh, among many uh, trials, uh, some scientists pioneered to test this cell replacement therapy by collecting uh, dopaminergic precursor cell from aborted tissue uh, and then harvest the cell and then inject to the uh, patient's brain, striatum, uh, with some immunosuppression. So, uh, in fact, there are many, uh, many positive uh, uh, reports about this fetal cell transplantation. So in earlier 1990s, uh, many studies showed that uh, the patients uh, really benefited and the cell therapy really worked. However, yeah, later, uh, 2000, early 2000, uh, controlled studies showed that uh, the result is very mixed. And sometimes there is a, uh, a side effect, which is graft-induced dyskinesia. So because of that, although some studies showed very promising results, and in some patients, the benefit lasts uh, like decades, you know, 10, 10 years or even 20 years. So we can conclude that fetal cell transplantation studies demonstrated the proof of principle for cell therapy of Parkinson's disease. However, as I explained, uh, fetal cell transplantation has a significant ethical issue, practical issue, and medical limitation and the controlled studies show that uh, the results are not significant because that means that, that there is too much variability. So uh, when I started uh, the re research, actually I started uh, neuroscience uh, when I became a junior faculty at the Harvard, uh, uh, sorry, the Cornell Medical School. And then when I relocated to Harvard Medical School 20 years ago, I started uh, uh, this stem cell research. Uh, at the time, uh, fetal cell transplantation, which I explained as an introduction in previous slides, well, already uh, you know, happened. So based on that, uh, I decided to jump on the stem cell research for Parkinson's disease because my research has been on the dopaminergic neuron. And I thought that uh, for reasons I explained to you, I thought that the cell therapy is a very promising future therapy for Parkinson's disease. But uh, fetal cell transplantation showed a very nice proof of principle, but it's not uh, very uh, ideal and not practical and many issues. Then the question is what could be the ideal cell source for Parkinson's disease uh, cell therapy? And many scientists tried the different cell uh, sources such as adult stem cell. And now there are very extensive study as you may have heard uh, using the human embryonic stem cell uh, and then very recent study showed that uh, there is a good possibility to use the direct converted dopamine cells. And then also there are some other types of embryonic stem cell by the nuclear transfer. But the, we thought, I thought that the most exciting possibility is the technology called induced pluripotent stem cell technology. Uh, which I will explain in the next slide. 
So this uh, technology was invented by uh, Professor uh, Shinya Yamanaka in Japan, uh, who uh, made uh, it possible to convert the somatic cell, like a skin cell, to the only embryo-like stem cell, like a uh, uh, very pluripotent stem cell, meaning that uh, pluripotent stem cell, they called it IPSL, induced pluripotent stem cell. And they are pluripotent stem cell, meaning that they can uh, become any type of cell of the body. So based on this uh, uh, groundbreaking study, uh, Professor Yamanaka got the Nobel Prize uh, after six years, 2012. Uh, and they call it the uh, reprogrammers take the Nobel. So won the Nobel Prize. Everybody, please mute yourself if you're on, so Dr. Um, Kim can talk. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so again, uh, in 2006, uh, Shinya Yamanaka reported a groundbreaking study uh, showing that fully differentiated cell, like a skin cell, can be de-differentiated or reprogrammed all the way back to the embryonic stem cell-like cell, so-called induced pluripotent stem cell, uh, which ignited the explosive interest both from scientific and uh, general public because this IPS technology will allow patient-specific personalized uh, and autologous cell therapy. So <clears throat> this IPS cell has unprecedented potential, but most exciting thing is that uh, we can drive the, uh, uh, the IPS cell from patient, and then this IPS cell can become any type of cell, but in our case, uh, we want to uh, differentiate this iPS cell to dopamine cell so that we can uh, do the uh, cell replacement therapy for Parkinson's disease. So to make this possible, uh, we need a lot of uh, uh, study, uh, a lot of research, because there are many steps uh, which all need to be uh, you know, fully uh, optimized. But in 2013, unfortunately, uh, NIH cut the, uh, the fund and my lab also, uh, my lab laboratory budget was cut almost half. But uh, something uh, very special happened on that year, 2013. And I presented my research in a uh, uh, symposium, which was held in Boston. And then a gentleman uh, listened to my talk. And then uh, I came back to my uh, uh, office because as I said, NIH uh, budget was cut, so I had, I had to write many more grants to continue my research. But this gentleman, uh, which turned out to be uh, also a doctor, uh, medical doctor, Dr. Lopez, uh, was a Parkinson's patient. And he wanted to talk to me, and I was gone. So he wrote uh, me an email, uh, and which said that, thank you for your work. Uh, you presented at the STEM cell conference uh, on eight, uh, April 29th this week. And I am willing to fund the work if they could go faster. The amount of money I'm willing to fund is whatever it takes to go twice as fast. I hope to benefit from that work. If not me, mankind will be better. So he was uh, really uh, uh, such an amazing philanthropist and uh, supported my research. And owing to his very special support, and, and then also uh, my continued NIH uh, work, uh, NIH grant, uh, we decide, our, team, our team decided to uh, pursue this uh, personalized cell therapy more uh, seriously and more actively. And first, we identified what is the critical issue 
to make this therapy possible. And number one is a safety issue. Of course, to get the FDA approval, safety is the most important issue. And then uh, number two is uh, reprogramming technology. Reprogramming technology means that uh, how to make the clinical grade iPS cell from patient skin cell. Uh, that's number two. And number three, once we make the clinical grade iPS cell, we have to maneuver uh, these iPS cells so that they become functional and uh, authentic uh, dopaminergic cells. Uh, and then we also have to make sure that uh, this therapy is safe and uh, effective using the animal models. And then uh, we need to optimize the neurosurgical device, which uh, Dr. Schweitzer will present. And then we need the regulatory to get the FDA approval and budgetary and clinical issues, which will be also presented by Dr. Schweitzer. <clears throat> so uh, before uh, I uh, move to, to our uh, data, in, to, in 2016, Nature published uh, this uh, interesting uh, article uh, saying that the induced pluripotent stem cells were supposed to herald a medical revolution, but 10 years after their discovery, they are transforming biological research instead which means that originally iPS cells uh, were very much uh, welcomed as a possibility to make the autologous cell therapy. But there are many hurdles uh, for the autologous cell therapy. So right now, the majority of scientists are using this technology for the research only, not therapy yet. So to make this technology uh, for the clinical application, what do we need to do? As I mentioned, number one is safety. So how we uh, make sure that uh, our uh, cell therapy is uh, absolutely safe? There are two important aspects. Number one, the iPS cells should have very intact, uh, very clean genomic integrity, which means that the, their karyotype is normal, there is no chromosomal uh, abnormality. There is no uh, residual foreign DNA. And there is no acquired mutation or any harmful uh, you know, genetic changes. So in other words, in iPS cells, the chromosome, chromosome, their chromosomes should be in, as intact as the patient's own cell. And number two, uh, when we uh, differentiate the iPS cells to dopaminergic neurons, there could be some remaining iPS cells, which means that undifferentiated iPS cells. But the point is that these un remaining undifferentiated iPS cells can make teratoma, so which is not good. So we have to make sure that when we differentiate iPS cells to dopamine neurons, there is a no zero uh, undifferentiated cells remaining. So we have to work on this. So we uh, figured out uh, a very uh, nice, smart chemical method, uh, which can very selectively care undifferentiated iPS cell, but doesn't touch at all any differentiated cells. So, uh, for example, there is a, a undifferentiated iPS cell, uh, and uh, we differentiate them to dopamine cells. So these uh, dark blue cells are dopaminergic cells, but there could be some remaining undifferentiated cell. So if we uh, transplant this mixed population, teratoma can uh, be formed. But we generated, uh, we uh, invented a, a nice chemical method which can only selectively uh, kill this uh, remaining undifferentiated cell, but doesn't affect at all the dopaminergic cells. But then after this step, there will be teratoma-free, uh, safe engraftment is possible. So we got the US patent, they published this result. 
And number two issue is <clears throat> how we <clears throat> can make uh, uh, clinical grade iPS cells. So uh, as I said, although uh, Professor Yamanaka invented this uh, reprogramming method and got the Nobel Prize, still uh, the current reprogramming method is not mature enough, not perfect. So as a result, uh, the iPS cells are not clinical grade. So we uh, decided to study the reprogramming process at the molecular level. Uh, and then we found out that there are many important uh, changes among, during the reprogramming process. And uh, when we, uh, we investigate this procedure, we uh, found the novel factors uh, which are very important for this uh, reprogramming uh, process beyond the Yamanaka factors what Yamanaka invented. So we uh, combined these uh, new factors with the Yamanaka factors, and then we invented a, a new and improved uh, reprogramming method. So uh, we, this is all the procedure, but the, uh, in, in conclusion, we found a uh, microRNA factors, which are very important. And when we combined these microRNA factors with the Yamanaka factors, our combined method can generate uh, clinical grade iPS cells very efficiently. So this uh, uh, new, uh, our method is also uh, patent pending. And then number, we'll move on to the number three. Once we make uh, clinical grade iPS cells, we have to uh, somehow manage them to become functional dopaminergic neurons. So there are many uh, active groups in the world uh, and, and they are prominent scientists and they are uh, working on how to uh, convert the iPS cells to the functional dopaminergic neurons. But then we realized that current methods are not perfect, are not uh, you know, ideal. So we invented a new uh, differentiation method, which we uh, named the spotting-based uh, differentiation method. And the point is very simple. Instead of the monolayer confluent cell uh, differentiation, we confine the uh, limited space where we, uh, we inoculate the cells, iPS cells. Then iPS cells are growing in this red spot, not in the whole area. And then they, uh, they eventually grow like this and they have a borderline this. And we found out that when we differentiate the dopamine cells in our method, which we call spotting-based method, these dopaminergic cells are significantly healthier. So we uh, used this method to produce the dopamine uh, cells for the cell therapy. And then uh, number four issue is that how can we uh, know that uh, th these dopamine cells are safe? Uh, to prove that, uh, we tested their in vivo safety uh, in the uh, mouse model. Uh, and uh, we found out that when we uh, transplant undifferentiated, which means that they zero cell, uh, they make all the teratomas, 100%. So as we expected, undifferentiated iPS cells can make this kind of a teratoma. But when we differentiated them to, uh, for the 28 days, uh, these 28 days, they don't produce at all any uh, teratoma or any cancer, any uh, proliferating cells, showing that uh, the, uh, the iPS cells differentiated in our method for 28 days, they are very safe. What about function? Do they have a function? And we tested uh, many different uh, behavioral studies, which is mimicking Parkinson's disease. And one typical study, is a so-called rotation study. In this rotation study, uh, we uh, uh, lesion 
one side of the dopaminergic neurons using neurotoxin. So this rat, uh, experimental uh, uh, animal rat, has dopa functional dopamine in one side, but uh, no functional dopamine in the other side. And then we treat them with some drug because of this unbalance, they do the rotation. So we measure the rotation. And if these rats rotate more than six times per minute, we call it Parkinsonian rat. So then we transplant the lesion side, uh, the uh, dopaminergic cells from iPS cells using uh, our method. Then uh, when we uh, do not uh, the transplant cells, they continuously, even after uh, six months, seven months, they rotate. Uh, their rotation behavior continues, which means that they are Parkinsonian. But when we transplanted dopaminergic cells from iPS cells, because actually this is the um, iPS cells from our patient, number one patient. So before we do the clinical trial, we tested our patient's iPS cells and then dopaminergic cells. And then we tested the patient's dopaminergic cells in this animal model. And uh, <clears throat> uh, very strikingly, when we transplanted uh, 100,000 cells to this uh, Parkinsonian rat, their rotation behavior was completely uh, rescued. So they no more uh, uh, rotate abnormal. So we uh, uh, used the different uh, cells and the different uh, number of cells, and we uh, confirmed that they are all functional. Their Parkinsonian rotation behavior was completely rescued. Oh, so uh, now, uh, so this is the end of our uh, scientific part. And from this point, Dr. Shivaisha will explain uh, how to uh, you know, make this uh, transition to the clinical application. Thank you, Konsu. Can you um, unshare your screen and I, I will uh, share slides from my side, if that's all right. Okay, good, sure. You can release that and, okay. Can everybody see my screen? Yes. Okay. So I came to this project from a little bit of a different angle, kind of a full circle. I uh, did my medical and uh, scientific training at Harvard Medical School in the early 1980s. And uh, my project was on what would someday be known as stem cells. Uh, wasn't known, that wasn't a term that was in use at the time. Um, but then I became interested in neuro, uh, clinical neuroscience, electrophysiology, things like epilepsy and movement disorder, and found that I didn't have the patience to sit still to be a neurologist, so I went into surgery. And I trained in neurosurgery at, at UCLA. Those were in the days when the transplants for Parkinson's were yeah. first beginning, starting with people's own tissues. We used to take the adrenal medulla, which is a part of the body that sits on top of the kidney and makes hormones, but it also makes some of the same chemicals that go into dopamine and would transplant those into the brain. Those didn't work very well. The field moved on to the fetal tissue transplants that, uh, that Dr. Kim was talking about earlier uh, with the ups and downs and mixed results that came from those. At the same time, I was also trained in pallidotomy, which some of you may remember uh, became popular in the early 90s. And in those, in those operations, people with severe Parkinson's, we would, we would burn holes in the brain, literally burn holes in the brain to try to relieve some of the symptoms. You know, it's a little bit like trying to fix your TV by taking out a piece. It's not a very satisfactory way to fix a problem. Uh, we were all pleased when deep brain stimulation came out late in the 90s and the early 2000s because it was non-destructive. But as you all probably know, it does involve permanently implanted wires and pacemakers. And once again, it's just treating the symptoms. So it's kind of the same thing as burning holes in the brain, only you're doing it with white noise, just kind of blasting and, and jamming the signal. 
again, it works great for many patients, but it's not a very satisfying way to solve the problem. And as Dr. Kim said, we knew from the fetal tissue work that some patients did very well for decades. It was not entirely clear why some people did better than others, but at least the proof of concept was there. One thing that was missing from all those early studies I had seen was they tended to be a partnership between basic scientists like Dr. Kim and neurologists. And those of us who were surgeons were just kind of a pair of hands where we took the cells from the lab, put them through a needle, put them into the brain, wherever the neurologist told us to put them. And I, being a neurosurgeon, didn't think that was a very satisfactory role either. I had done over a thousand deep brain simulators at the point when I became aware of this research. Uh, that same Dr. Lopez was actually the patient of one of the neurologists I worked with in Los Angeles. And she introduced the two of us. And just by coincidence, it turned out that the scientific group that Dr. Lopez was interested in was at Harvard, which kind of led me full circle from UCLA and the West Coast back to Harvard, where I came uh, three years ago to help support this project. What you're looking at here was an answer to this pair of hands problem, where the neurosurgeons involved really hadn't been effective in the translation from the laboratory to the patient's body. What I mean by that was most of those fetal tissue studies used 10 or 100 times as many cells as we really wanted in the brain. Why, why would you do that? An adult normal human brain has something like 250,000 dopamine cells, but these, these uh, fetal tissue studies would put in many millions of cells. And the reason is because most of the cells that you put in don't survive the whole process of being sucked up into the needle and injected into the brain. There's many problems in, in breaking the tissue up when you take them out of either the fetus or now out of the laboratory dish. There's more problems when they go through the needle. And finally, when they get into the brain, they're in an unfamiliar environment. There are no blood vessels supplying them with food and oxygen when they're first put in there. And so most of these cells die. And the solution to that problem was just to put in more and more cells. But as you can imagine, putting in more and more cells gives you a few of the ones you want and a lot of dead cells which can stir up inflammation and immune responses and other things. There was also no standard surgical technique for any of these things. Everybody used different numbers of cells, different directions and so forth. So in coming to this project, I wanted to do two things. I wanted to come up with a standardized way of doing this with equipment that was designed exactly for this, for this kind of work. Uh, I also wanted to see if we could come up with some simple ways to make this less traumatic to a patient's brain and to get more of these cells to survive. And that is still a work in progress. But we first did something very simple, which is what you're looking at in this slide. The top shows the traditional way of putting cells into the brain for the earlier studies, which is you take a, a syringe and you just blast them in there and it forms a kind of big round ball of cells. Well, any, anyone who remembers back to high school geometry would know that uh, the surface area to volume ratio of a sphere is the lowest you can get. In other words, for the oxygen and sugar and, and fuel to get into that ball of cells is most difficult in a sphere. If you stretch it out into a cylinder shape, it's much easier for those things to get into the cells inside that cylinder. And so what we did here was we redesigned the injection method using a simple mechanical device that moves the barrel and the plunger of the syringe separately so that we actually squeeze the cells out like toothpaste as we pull the needle out from the target in the brain, creating a <coughs> column. And, and just that simple move, just that by itself, just a simple mechanical move, uh, Actually, let me see, how do I move this along here? I'm trying to figure out, oh, there we go, okay. Uh, just that simple move increased the survival of the graft cells by 30%. So we had these wonderful 
well-tested, safe, effective cells from Dr. Kim's lab, and uh, we wanted to make sure that they got a chance to do their job in the brain. This is a picture using a model uh, rodent brain of what it looks like when you do the traditional kind of injection. And then with this new technique that we developed, and what you see here is a big hole that was torn in the brain by the traditional method, whereas we end up with this nice column. So again, this improved our uh, survival of cells by 30%. We're, we hope to get that closer to 90%. We're still working on refining that technique, but we were very pleased that we were able to make an improvement with such a simple maneuver. Well, we felt at this point we had safe cells and an improved method of putting them in, but you can't just take somebody out to the garage and inject cells into the brain. This is a complicated issue, uh, both logistically and medically legally, and so we turned to the FDA. We wanted this to be entirely uh, approved uh, under the watchful eyes of the poor uh, FDA. I say the poor FDA because, you know, it, it's, it's a thankless task they really have. If they don't approve things fast enough, uh, people yell at them for being too slow. If they approve things too fast, people yell at them for not being safe enough. It's a tough job. Um, and we found them really very reasonable people to work with, but we wanted this to be a partnership so they would know exactly what we were doing. And in part, that's because we planned, as Doc Lopez said in that, that uh, statement that Dr. Kim showed you, we wanted to help millions of people, and this was the first step. And we wanted to work with them to make sure we would eventually get there. So understanding that and understanding that we had identified a patient who we thought met the criteria for a study like this, to be a first in human patient for a new technique, we ended up putting together over 1,200 pages of documentation to show the safety of the cells to demonstrate all the things that Dr. Kim just showed you, and then to demonstrate the surgical technique that I just uh, showed you, which was new, uh, would also be safe. We were able to do this over a period of about a year to, uh, as you see here, a little over a, um, a year, to get them to agree that we had developed something that was safe for first use in human. They had a couple of stipulations, though. They would not allow us to operate on both sides of the brain at the same time. We had to do first one side, wait six months to make sure everything was okay, and then do the other. There were a number of safety tests and samples and things along the way that we had to demonstrate. And then they also had some requirements for the surgery, such as they wanted us to demonstrate in the operating room that when we put the needle in to inject the cells into the brain, that they were really going where we said they were going. So all of these things had to be planned out. And because we were just in transition here from, I was moving from California and we had a lot of things going on, we needed new equipment for this. It turned out we did these two operations six months apart and in two different places. The first operation, on Dr. Lopez was done in New York, and the second was done at Mass General in Boston. And here's a picture of uh, the, the travel associated with that first trip. The cells, of course, were developed in Dr. Kim's lab at McLean Hospital in the suburbs of Boston uh, and grown in a special laboratory called a GMP laboratory, a good manufacturing process. Uh, which is again something that's it's, uh, extensive uh, safety testing, documentation, and so forth. But those cells in Boston had to get down alive to New York. We've since shown that you can actually freeze these cells and they still work, but at the time we didn't know that. So we had the clock ticking, as you see here, um, taking those cells from the laboratory, flying them by jet, and then carrying them across the street to the hospital in New York. Here is the first surgery. Uh, these big donut-shaped things are actually CT scanners that work in the operating room so that we can show, as the FDA wanted, that our equipment is putting the cells into the right place and not causing any problems. Uh, that surgery went very well. Patient did great for the next six months. And so following this, our second operation, was at Mass General, but I'm going to take a pause here for a moment and say, well, 
how, how did the surgery work? I showed you that special piece of equipment we developed. Are his slides. You don't touch anything. So he's speaking, and this is what he's showing. Sorry. Okay. If everybody would would mute, please. Thank you. So this is how the surgery was planned for both of these operations. Um, what you see here is based on the MRI scan. Uh, the pink is the target area in the brain, and the three colored lines are the three trajectories that we use. So we passed the needle in on each side of the brain, each of these operations. We made three tracks and divided about four million cells into these three tracks, which are in sort of the mid body of this structure called the putamen, and then two of them in the posterior area. And this was based on which part of this brain structure is most closely involved with movement. So we wanted to get them all in there, but we started at a single point, again, for safety reasons. This was what our plan looked like. And carrying it out, here we are in the operating room at Mass General, uh, taking the cells from that GMP facility and loading up the little tube here we are actually during the surgery. The patient is down here under the drape. This is Dr. Bob Carter, the chief of neurosurgery at Mass General. This is me. And here's that little device that I showed you before in the cartoon, the, the uh, thing that made the column injection. We're loading it up and actually it has a little automated uh, pump. And over a period of about 15 minutes, it would fill up each of these tracks in the brain. And as I mentioned, the FDA wanted us to prove that these cells were really going where we thought they were going. So these are pictures made with the CAT scanner in the operating room. And then we take those pictures and we fuse them back onto the original plan to prove that we were where we wanted to be. Here's again that pink structure, which is what contained our targets. And this is sort of a 3D reconstruction. These are slices looking at in X, Y, and Z at you know, 90 degree angles, looking at it every which way. And what you see here, the blue line is the original surgery plan on the computer, and the white is the actual needle inside the brain at its target. Uh, and let me go back there for a second. And the yellow is just measuring the depth of the business end of this needle, which was 15 millimeters. So this is where our column of cells was gonna be placed. So this made us all very happy. We were right where we wanted to be. Also on a CAT scan, you can see if there's bleeding or any other problems, and we showed that this all looked fine. After those three injections were done, uh, the patient was in the hospital overnight and went home the next day. Over the subsequent months, we waited and watched. So those cells are like little baby dopamine neurons. They need to grow out. In the fetal tissue studies, it took years to see the full result. And with, with uh, this IPS cell technology that Dr. Kim developed, we really didn't know how long it would take before we would see effect or if we would see any. So we were very pleased to see that over the next two years, we did see improvements. Our main goal here was to prove that all this could be done, that this technology would all work and you could actually do this. Our next goal, of course, was safety, that we didn't cause a teratoma, which is a kind of brain cancer, that we didn't get any, any strokes, any tumors. And of course, though, everybody wants to know, did it work, did it help? Um, so our patient has had no strokes, no tumors, no, no adverse events, nothing bad happened. And in fact, he has had noticeable improvement. Down here in the lower left corner, these red arrows point on an MRI scan to where the targets are, to where the uh, grafts were placed. And you can see them a little bit better on the right than on the left, these little white rings here. That's the graft area with the little dopamine cells now growing out. And again, showing that at different angles. These color pictures are called PET scans. And, and these particular PET scans, the brighter colors, the yellow colors are showing it's basically Cinemet getting into the brain. It's levodopa. This is, the, as you know, it's the, the food that makes the dopamine. And if you don't have any dopamine cells, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't get tape, taken up. Uh, when you have healthy dopamine cells, it sucks that stuff up and lights up on these scans. 
So this is before either of the surgeries when, when uh, Dr. Lopez was rapidly getting worse. This is actually three months after his first surgery at Cornell. And what you see here is that both sides look worse than they did in May. Three months is really too early for his first graft to have grown out. And so what you're looking at is the, the rapid worsening of this condition, fewer of these dopamine cells. Well, a few months later, after the second side had been now suddenly, it's increasing in brightness and it continued to do so out for two years. So there's a dramatic improvement now in this part of the brain in uptake of the, of the cinnamate, basically of the levodopa, and that only happens when you have dopamine cells. So this is good evidence that the cells actually survived and are doing what we want them to do. Parkinson's, as many of you know, if you've participated in trials, is, is notoriously subject to placebo effects. When people are participating in trials, they, they want to do better. Uh, there's some willpower that goes into it. Um, there's also an, a training effect. If you're trying to do a task over and over, you get better at it. So the whole medical literature in this field is very, very careful to look at what's real and what might be a placebo effect. And of course, for what we're talking about tonight, we're not yet doing that kind of careful, controlled clinical trial, which will be absolutely necessary before something like this can become a therapy available to everybody. So again, that PET scan that I just showed you is nice because you can't have a placebo effect on a scan of your head like that. But we also, of course, wanted to look at the patient's function and see what things got better and what things didn't. And this gives you an idea. These graphs are some of the functions that our neurology team looked at in the patient. His movement, his quality of life, and in these graphs, lower numbers are better. So we had some up and down modest improvement in his motor function, which is here. Although this is continuing now to get better now that we're past 24 months. His quality of life and other things, though, got considerably better. Uh, and there are some things which are hard to measure on a test in a neurologist's office, like for someone who likes to ski, what sort of difference it makes in the activities that are meaningful to the patient. So now videos don't always play terribly well over Zoom, but I, I want to show you here if this will work. Um, this is our patient before his surgery in white. He was not a bad skier, but those of you who are familiar with Parkinson's will, will watch this and kind of see that he's not moving very much. He kind of lost his balance a little bit there. And sorry, going backwards, having a little trouble here. And if you watch his arm, you'll see his tremor on the right side there. And then he got going again, but he had people who had to accompany him and watch him because you know it was easy for him to fall. So that's, that is before his surgery. Here he is this spring. He is now uh, about two and a half years out from his surgery. And, and that's how he skis now. And he's had similar effects with his ability to swim, but it's more than anything, little things. He can tie his shoes again. He can button his shirt. He can turn over in bed. Uh, so, we're very encouraged. We're very pleased by what we're able to accomplish with our very first effort in humans. Uh, again, I, I think this is, this is uh, going to drive us forward. And uh, I'm gonna turn this back over to uh, Kwang Su for the last part of it to talk about our future plans with this. But we, we learned a great deal from this about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, we got enough information to encourage us to move on to the next stage, which is going to be real formal clinical trials, uh, and we hope that those will start in the next year or so. But, Hong so I think you have a little bit more to say about future plans for this. So back over to you. Hong Su. He's muted. All right, uh, thank you. Uh, very nice uh, presentation. Let me see. Uh, 
I guess while we're waiting for that to come up, does anyone have any questions? How do we sign up for the surgery? <laughs> well, as I said, you know, um, this was a pilot study. In a sense, you know, when we, we say pilot, it's in the sense of, you know, the, the old, the, a, a boat, a ship pilot, uh, whose job was to guide large ships into harbors past dangerous rocks and obstructions. I mean, that's where we're at with this. Uh, we are, in fact, at this point, um, we are selecting patients to create the IPSC and do the differentiation process in the laboratory. We are planning to do that on about 12 or 15 patients. We've, we've got, I'm actually doing a biopsy tomorrow, so we've started that process. But no one has signed up for the surgery yet. Uh, we still have a lot more safety testing to demonstrate to the FDA before they'll allow us to proceed with the clinical trial. And, and so it is underway and uh, you know, we'll kind of pass out emails at the end. Anyone who wants to learn more about that, I'm, I'm happy to uh, talk about where we are with this. Um, but yeah, we, we can't wait to be able to sign people up too. It's the very person who the person who had the surgery the one who funded the research? Uh, he funded part of it, yes. He contributed to it. That, that's, uh, he, this surgery was done under something called expanded access, uh, which is kind of a, a, a rapid pathway for people with certain uh, advanced diseases. Um, and it's been done for other things as well, where people will create a charity to, or uh, get contributions to fund a specific surgery for a specific patient. So obviously, you know, we worry about conflict of interest and things of that nature. And this was vetted by the FDA and by the IRB at both Cornell and at, uh, at Harvard before they would let us go ahead with this. Uh, but the, the short answer is, yes, he funded uh, part of the surgery or part of the research that went into the surgery, yes. So everybody see the slide now? Can yeah. you see the slide? Yes. yes okay. okay, so let me uh, very briefly, uh, you know, uh, uh, conclude. So in summary, uh, we showed that the human IPS-based personalized cell therapy uh, could be a reality but need more study. So in principle, uh, as I showed you, uh, from the patient, uh, we can uh, get some uh, biopsy. In our case, we got the skin biopsy and we grow them to the fibroblast cells. But uh, some people also use the blood cell. But anyway, from this cell, we reprogram to the clinical grade IPS cell and by the whole genome sequencing and many other molecular studies, uh, we uh, select the best clinical grade iPS cell and then differentiate them to the functional midbrain dopaminergic neurons uh, and then transplant the Jeff and our uh, clinical team transplant and do the monitor. And we, uh, present, uh, we presented and uh, we also published uh, most of our studies in the uh, many scientific journals. And the last slide is uh, the lessons and the future studies. Um, so currently uh, now we are working on a preparation of the IND application to get the full approval from FDA for phase one and two clinical studies and we are planning to do the double-blind control study. And the uh, very important thing is now, uh, we are very happy about the first uh, human pa patient result, but uh, we don't know yet whether this uh, therapy can work in other patients uh, or if there is any individual variability. Uh, because we have uh, advanced and improved technology, uh, I believe that our technology can be applicable to other patients, but we have to prove it in our uh, next uh, clinical trial. And uh, another big challenge is that uh, until now, this therapy is a very expensive one. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, uh, however, uh, we believe that uh, with further research, uh, the, uh, the cost will significantly go down. One example is that the human genome sequencing project. And as you may remember, about two decades ago, uh, when uh, scientists want to uh, do the full genome sequencing for one person, the cost was more than hundreds of uh, millions of dollars. Right now, how much? $1,000. So this technology is improving so tremendously. And uh, as a result, we believe that even our personalized cell therapy uh, cost will significantly go down so that many patients can benefit. Uh, so that's where we are. And uh, again, thank you for this opportunity. And uh, uh, we are very honored to share our result. But at the same time, we are very humbled because so far we treated only one patient after many decades of research. But Jeff and I and our team will work very hard to make this therapy as the realistic uh, option for many patients uh, like you. Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, besides the function of skiing, the improved skiing, what other functions did you see an improvement if you saw any? Well, those, the graphs that I showed you before are the usual tests that neurologists do for Parkinson's motor tasks and, and many other things that you would be tested for in a neurologist's office. But uh, as I mentioned, many of his day-to-day -day activities which had become difficult are now possible. Again, tying his shoes, buttoning his shirt, feeding himself. Uh, he is a, a, he likes the water. He was, had lost the ability to swim. He had lost the ability to ride bicycles. He's, he's recovered all of those things. So you know, many different activities and aspects of life. But one of the interesting things that got better was his voice volume improved. It was one of the early things that came back, which was kind of unexpected because that doesn't always respond so well to treatment. So a broad range of aspects. But again, as you all know, Parkinson's is a very variable disease from person to person. And so how it would affect other individuals, we don't know yet. Um, you know, this is one of the things we'll learn from the clinical trial. Thank you. I was also going to point out did his tremor improve? His tremor improved uh, somewhat. It's not completely gone, not 100%, but it's improved. He's actually got no tremor now on the left side and has slight tremor on the right, uh, which was always his worst and it's more affected side. But it, it's improved, but not completely gone. Is he on any medications? Oh, yes. You know, the treatments, uh, this is a treatment. It's not a cure. I mean, a cure would be identifying the disease in its early stages and stopping it in its tracks. So there are, as some of you know, there are parts of Parkinson's which don't respond to dopamine, so-called you know, non-dopaminergic aspects. Uh, things like constipation and sleep problems and so on, but it's not clear what those come from. Um, and so this is, we hope a, a more effective treatment and a non-destructive treatment, and it will help largely the motor parts, the movement parts of Parkinson's. But we would not expect people to come completely off their medication. In my experience with DBS, there was a very small number of people who could do that. But in general, what we see hopefully 10 years from now, is that there will be a menu of different options that include things like DBS and medication, and also cell therapy of various types, stuff uh, like what we've shown you tonight, direct differentiation. And I think that we'll have a time when we can choose from that menu which treatment or combination of treatments are going to work best. But I think the medicines are gonna be with us for a long time hopefully less with fewer side effects, but it's, it's, he's still on medication and I think most people will be. Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, how does the work that you have been doing relate to the work that um, Dr. Zheng Dong Fu at um, 
has been doing. So we heard him talk about creating new neurons and, and uh, some of the same things that you talked about. Hongsu, do you know who that is? Uh, uh, can you uh, can you explain uh, where where Dr. Fu is? I I don't think I uh, clearly understand what what kind of research he did. He uh, he's a cellular and molecular medicine and doing work on single treatment creating new neurons to eliminate Parkinson's in mice. Oh, I see. Is that the UCSD? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you know that is a uh, couple of months ago published in Nature, right? Yeah, the direct reprogramming. Direct, uh, direct uh, conversion. So he, uh, he introduced uh, some virus and then converted uh, in mice, converted uh, glial cell, astrocyte cell to dopaminergic neuron and then improve the symptom, right? Yeah, so actually uh, in, uh, when I showed you a slide, uh, the, uh, maybe uh, I can uh, go back, but uh, uh, when I showed you a slide, uh, what is the ideal cell source for Parkinson's cell therapy? One of the option was directly converted uh, dopamine neurons. Uh, however, uh, that is uh, still in the animal study, and uh, there is no uh, at all, not at all, clinical uh, study. There is not even the monkey study yet. So uh, there are many studies which worked apparently in mouse study, but uh, as you know, uh, many of those uh, mouse studies did not uh, reproduce in the human study. So uh, whether the same strategy can really work in the clinical setting uh, is really, uh, you know, we have to wait and see. Uh, but that is absolutely fascinating uh, scientific story. I, I would also add to that comment, I, I agree, it's fascinating work and it, 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 the concept is wonderful. It does involve this uh, called an adeno-associated virus uh, which is a, a, to bring the gene therapy into the brain to do that conversion. Those viruses are commonly used in gene therapy and are generally believed to be safe. However, there was a publication that came out in the, the journal Science earlier this year that showed that, in fact, those viruses do get into the genes of the host. This was a work from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia using diabetic dogs, but unexpectedly it showed those viruses actually can still act like viruses. And just in general, when you're doing something directly in the brain like that, you have limited control over where it goes and what it does, and you can't test what's happened the way we can with the cells in a dish. So when Dr. Kim makes these things in a dish before we put them into the brain, he can test them every which way he wants before we put them in there. You can't do that in, 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 when it's directly converting inside the brain. So there's good points and bad points. And I, I think, as I said, I, I think all of these things are likely to pay, play a role in the future. They're all valuable tools and we don't know yet how it's all gonna come together. In your patient, did you notice any cognitive or memory changes? Uh, no, because he was cognitively intact to begin with, and just as is usually the case for deep brain stimulator uh, patients, we screen for that. So I, I, I'm very much looking forward to the point at which we can try to improve and reverse those things, not only the Parkinson's plus patients, Parkinson's with Lewy body disease and cognitive issues, but even uh, using an approach like this for things like Alzheimer's. But at this point, uh, not just our group, but others in this field are, are, are not uh, doing this yet in people who have cognitive issues. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Schweitzer, when do you, like looking at the best case scenario, how and do you think this is something what do you project the time period would be if everything goes well that this would be something that would be a vi viable option for is the generally available uh, so st studies on new 
strategies for particularly surgical strategies, which are a little bit different than drug studies, have to do a lot of safety testing, which takes a long time and a large number of patients. We hope that our clinical trial will start within a year or so. Uh, it will likely take at least two years to see the outcomes from that first study, which will allow us to go on. That, that's called phase one, phase two. Uh, then you have to go through phase three, which is a large scale study involving many patients, uh, which will have to look at them probably for three or four years. So I, I'm guessing, I, I mean, I wish it were shorter, but my guess is probably between six and 10 years okay. that this would be available. And there are many other labs doing similar kind of work. We didn't really talk about it, but one of the things that's unique about what we're doing here, which is important to understand, is this is called autologous or personalized cell therapy, where we're taking the cells from the patient himself or herself and therefore we don't have to put these people on immunosuppression we don't need drugs to suppress their immune system most of the other workers in this field other laboratories in order to kind of make it safer well not safer in order to make it easier and less expensive are using kind of off-the-shelf cell lines uh, to do the conversion all those cell lines originally came from human fetuses, so people who get those cells do need to be immunosuppressed, which is something you'd rather not do. Um, the, the other aspect of that is some of those cell lines that have been on the shelf and passaged over and over and over again tend to develop more mutations. Uh, however, Cost is an issue because if you make each cell line individually and tailor it to each person, that costs more money. Also because of this, in satisfying the FDA that this is safe, if you're using a single off-the-shelf line, you only have to prove it once. But when you're going to individualize and use a separate line for every patient, they have asked us to show that we can do the exact same thing multiple times and have it come out the same way. So that takes a little bit longer, and, and that's what we're doing at, at right now. And I mentioned a moment ago, we, we are, we're doing that in animal studies, and we also do have an IRB-approved study at MGH where we are making fibroblasts for future potential patients. And, and so again, I, uh, Lynn, you have my email. Anybody in the group who wants to write to learn more about that part of the study that's ongoing now is, is welcome to do that. Who are you getting your funding from today? So this funding is still in part the original funding that came from uh, Dr. Lopez, also the NIH grants that Dr. Kim has for his research, and uh, departmental, for me, because I just arrived at Mass General three years ago, I'm still using my departmental startup funds for, for this fibroblast work and busy writing grants every weekend. <laughs> So as I said, uh, our patient, you know, yeah, when uh, we met each other, uh, he didn't really expect that uh, his support can benefit himself. You know, he just wanted to uh, help uh, our research uh, so that uh, you know the Parkinson's patients can benefit. That was his uh, major goal. Uh, but it ended up, uh, it ended up with uh, we are helping him first. Uh, because our technology, uh, our science and research advanced quite uh, more efficiently than we thought, uh, owing to his support as well as my own NIH grant. Uh, but the uh, very uh, important thing is, even after he improved, uh, very recently he's decided to furthermore support our research uh, so that we can expedite the phase one and phase two clinical trial. So we were all so much thankful for this, uh, you know, the, our patient and also very, you know, his generosity. So, uh, you know, uh, as, uh, then, uh, you know, his continued support and also my NIH support are the major funding sources. Thank you. This is all so exciting. You know, this is really good news. This is probably one of the best talks we've ever had. So we're just so impressed with both of you.
And we're very, very grateful for all the hard work that you're doing. Thank you so, so much. Well, thank you for inviting us. It was a lot of fun and privilege to speak to such an interested group. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. It's wonderful. It's really, you know what, I feel, I don't know about everybody else, but I feel very hopeful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Any other questions? Will we sign out? Okay. Okay. Thank Good you. Night. Thank Good night. You. Take care. Bye. 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 Good night. Bye. Bye. Good night. Bye. Good night, John Boy. <laughs> 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 Wasn't that impressive? Oh my God. That was. That was fabulous. Oh my God. All right. You don't you feel great? Oh, I could so. I have a question. Lynn, do you think Michael J. Fox will get behind this, or is it too early? I mean, I'm going to call them tomorrow. You know, I mean, I think that this is this is way too exciting. I hope they know about all this, and are, you know, I'm sure it's on their radar. Let me turn off the recording. Wait a minute, I don't want to record this. <laughs>